gospel according to Luke. And we're in chapter 12. We're going to finish that chapter this morning, looking at verses 49 through 59. So go ahead and open your Bible there. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Every now and then I let you know that I read out of the New King James Version of the Bible, just so you're not confused, those of you with your NIVs. You elitists with your NIVs, I'm more of a King James man, but anyway, the new King James, beginning in verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, And the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Let's pray together. Lord, our our purpose here this morning in studying your word is that we would see you revealed on these pages. That we would know more about your grace and mercy, your forgiveness and love towards us. And that being, having seen that, that we would be motivated by that to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves and that we would walk forward in that love, that we would spread that love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in every place. And so, Lord, I do pray that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit and by the power in your word that we would see you portrayed in these words, that we would get a a portrait, a living portrait, and that we would be so excited that we came, Lord, because we were here with you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Living in Southern California, in the foothills or just below them for many years, I experienced firsthand a few major fires. The worst was the Panorama Fire, which in November of 1980 burned across almost 24,000 acres of San Bernardino County, destroying 325 structures, mostly single-family homes. The homes on either side of my brother's were destroyed, as well as most of the rest of his neighborhood. We were forced to evacuate our home to my mom and dad's, which was itself in danger. 
When you live in fire-prone areas, you understand that there are really five seasons in the year. The regular four seasons plus fire season. Fire season typically begins on May 1st and runs through the end of October, but you can have significant fires on either side of those dates depending on the conditions. If you've been close to a really big fire, you understand that they take on a life of their own, creating their own winds, becoming firestorms. One resource I checked claims that a firestorm can produce the same amount of energy in 10 minutes as a nuclear explosion. Fires, fire season, and firestorms are the images Jesus used in our text. He first talked about the fire season, saying in verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth. The fire he spoke of is not yet kindled, but when it is, it will be a firestorm of enormous magnitude. Our planet, then, is currently in the fire season Jesus foresaw. The firestorm is coming and is inevitable. You and I need to understand our relationship to that fire. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, if you are a Christian, you cannot avoid the fire season. And number two, if you are not a Christian, you can still avoid the firestorm. So first of all, in verses 49 through 53, if you are a Christian, you cannot avoid the fire season. Sometimes a wildfire is the result of a controlled burn that gets out of control. The fire Jesus described in these verses is a controlled burn that will remain under control. It is the fire of God's judgment coming upon this earth in the future. Now, fire is more than a metaphor when we talk about God's judgment. The world will literally be destroyed by fire one day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, you read this, the heavens will be dissolved being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. When the current universe is destroyed and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, unbelievers will be judged with fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Your name is written in the book of life, meaning you are a Christian. You've been saved by faith uh, by grace through faith and if your name is not found there if you're not a christian when you die then you will be cast alive into a lake burning with fire for all eternity and so so good illustration sure but more than that more than a metaphor these are truths jesus was looking and thinking ahead to the world's final judgment you get a glimpse into his heart as you see he both desired final judgment but was distressed and so, first of all, he said he desired it in verse 49. He said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus came to save lost sinners. And he says here, he came to send fire on the earth. It sounds like, but it is not a contradiction. If you are a Christian, you understand his desire. It is your desire too. You want to see people saved before it's too late for them. You become a Christian and all of a sudden you have a compassionate burden for your family and friends 
and then for all people everywhere that they would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know instinctively as a born-again child of God that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And you have this fantastic desire. At the same time, you have a new feeling about the world. You see how evil and how wicked it is. And you want the last person who is going to be saved to go ahead and give their life to God so that the fire of His judgment will purify things once and for all. It's kind of a strange desire, but not a contradiction. On the one hand, that people that you love would get saved. On the other hand, that God would get on with it and that judgment would finally come because it is the only hope for this sin-sick world. And so that's what Jesus was expressing here in his desire. Now the fire is not yet kindled. It is future. And so that means that you and I live in a kind of spiritual fire season. Our entire time on earth between the time Jesus made this statement and his second coming, or actually his coming for the church, is a fire season. Now, before describing one of the conditions that will exist during fire season, Jesus went on to reveal that he was distressed. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Baptism is a word that we sometimes confuse, or that sometimes confuses us, because we immediately think of the practice of water baptism. It can also refer to a total immersion and participation in something. Sometimes even in the English language when somebody goes through an incredibly rough time, we say they were baptized by fire. It was like a baptism with fire. And and we mean that they just were overwhelmed by it and immersed in it. Now Jesus was talking here about his total immersion and participation in the sufferings of his crucifixion. It caused him to be distressed. Of course it did. The physical suffering alone would be enough to cause distress, but so would be the emotional suffering. Jesus would be so distressed emotionally that he would sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his crucifixion. And then there was the spiritual suffering that we could never begin to understand as Jesus would take upon himself the sins of the whole world to become our substitute on the cross, our sacrifice for sin, and our Savior. Jesus went to the cross, He accomplished the judgment of sin, and now offers salvation to all who believe in Him. Those who believe in Him have their sins judged and forgiven once and for all at the cross. Those who will not believe are headed for the fire of God's final judgment. The tension now between believers and unbelievers is a condition or a characteristic of this fire season in which we live. Jesus described what you could expect in verses 51 through 53. And if you're honest, this is what you've experienced as a Christian. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided... Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
There can be no lasting peace on earth until Jesus returns. In every household, wherever there are believers and unbelievers, there will be some level of division. Now, you know this. You struggle with this. Every Christmas and every Thanksgiving, you struggle with this. You, some of you want to be with your family and you don't want to be with your family at the same time. You're the Jesus freak. You're the religious fanatic. Oh, wait a minute. We have to pray before we eat. Go ahead and pray. And, and there's all of this kind of tension and strife. And so then you get into it and you say, okay, let's pray. Father, my family is a bunch of hell-doomed sinners. And I pray, Lord, that before we're done eating, uh, that they would come to know Jesus because they could choke on the wishbone. And, you know, you get into that kind of a thing. And some some you know, holidays are a little bit easier than others. And you, you, some of you leave and you say, man, we are never going to do that again. And your family, of course, saying, I hope they don't come back again. But there's, there's, you know, that family tie. And, and, and so you know what I'm talking about. It can be very difficult. Or maybe not even holidays. Let's say you come out of a certain religious tradition. You know, I, people think I, I, I pick on Roman Catholicism, but I, I was a Roman Catholic, and so that's my history. That's my background. And so let's say you come out of that background, and now you've established your own life, and, and your little baby comes forward, and then all of a sudden you get the call. The call. When is the baptism? Oh, maybe in about 12 years. Maybe in about 13 years when my daughter or son is old enough to have received Christ as their Savior and can give an outward confession of an inward work of the Spirit. What are you talking about? When are you going to bring it to the church so that we can sprinkle some water on it so we can all be happy that the baby might go to heaven one day? And a lot of you struggle with this. And, and, and I've fielded for years questions about, hey, is it a compromise to let my parents baptize my child because it's creating strife in my family? You bet you it's creating strife. That's what, what do you think Jesus is talking about? He said there's going to be division. Your father and mother are going to be against you because of things like this. Now, that's an individual decision. I think you know what my decision would be about that. Take a stand. And, you know, believe what you believe. But these are the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about. With compassion, you present the good news. You've been saved. It always amazed me. The things that I used to do that my parents hated and that really caused them grief. And then you become a Christian and you don't do them anymore. And then they would actually rather you not be a Christian and, and still be a drunken pothead. Because they knew you better then. You were more like them in a sense, I guess. I don't know what it was. Really, you get saved and your life turns around for the good and, and for the better. And people, it's like, hey, what happened to you? I, I, I don't like the new gene. It's, it's a spiritual thing, of course. It's a division. And so as hard as you try to be compassionate, they understand just by your conversion that you're calling them sinners. If, if you're a sinner that needs Jesus Christ and you're telling them about Jesus Christ, you know, two plus two still equals four and, and, and they know that you're calling them sinners and how hard is it maybe to, to share with your own parents 
I mean, they raised you. You know, how many times your mother said, I carried you in my womb. I changed your diapers. I mean, there's like leverage there. There's like a leverage, you know, they're always ahead of you. They've always done more for you. And then you are telling them they're going to die and go to hell if they don't get what you've got. What do you know? You know, that kind of a thing. And so this is a real thing that we go through. And Jesus was just being honest with us and telling us, hey, this, we live in fire season. And, and it's a dangerous thing. Uh, there's a lot of kindling that, that can go up. Any day, Jesus will return to remove the church from the earth so that the fire storm can begin. In the meantime, you cannot avoid fire season. We're in it. Now, in the remaining verses, Jesus turned his attention to unbelievers. And maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer. There's always unbelievers when we gather together, those that have not given their life to Jesus. And so if that's you, you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian you're holding back for whatever reason, then Jesus is talking to you specifically in the next few verses. If you are not a Christian, you can still avoid the coming firestorm. We are fascinated by the weather. There's an entire television channel devoted to the weather. I even watch it. That's what's even weirder. I'll go in and tell Pam something, honey... It's 35 degrees in Rome today. I'm not going there. I might care if I was going there. I mean, if you get off the plane, you want to know that, you know, I mean, if I'm going to some place, is that the opposite of, is it their winter while it's our summer? You know, you kind of want to pack, but just on a general base, I think, you know, the weather channel is just weird to me. People chasing weather and things like that. On my computer, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I think, but weather bug got loaded on my computer. And so it sits down in my task manager, and every once in a while, almost once a day, actually makes a little chirping sound like a bug. Severe weather alert. Oh, man, I look... In Hanford? And, and I go there, and it's like, a fog advisory has been issued until 9 a.m. Okay. All right. Yeah, I see that. And, uh, you know, so it's weird, our fascination with the weather. Now, it can be important if your livelihood depends on it. You're a farmer, or as I said, if you're traveling. But I think we're way too deep into the weather. I don't know how many conversations I had this morning about the weather. No, seriously. Oh, and I was in them. Yeah, man, I was so hot yesterday, and I did this plan. Yeah, look at that. Whoa, I thought it was gonna, thought it was gonna be warm today. Ah, oh, that weather, man. <laughs> those conversations. I mean, you could probably. Oh man, if I just had those words back, I'd be rich, you know. So, anyway, G- the gist of Jesus' comments in this whole section is that you ought to be more concerned with the coming firestorm of God's judgment than any possible weather event on the earth. And so he says in verse 54, he said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, shower's coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, it's going to be hot weather. And there it is. And, and isn't this true? How many times do you, you know, talking to your neighbor and say, ah, it's going to be foggy tomorrow. Or down in Southern California, well, the Santa Ana winds are kicking up. It's going to be dry and hot. 
Better get the allergy medication out or whatever. And this is our life. What have we become? Anyway, I dare you to go through an entire day and not make a reference to the weather. Will you do that? Try it. It's hard. Now, we joke about the weatherman always being wrong. But meteorologists have gotten pretty good at predicting certain weather events. Hurricane season is a good example as they track the likely path and strength of the storms, which ends up saving many lives. And I like, don't you love the little hurricane symbol? That's one of my favorite little symbols. I love that thing. I don't know why. It looks like a little demon. But, uh, but why do I get into it? I mean, I'll, be, you know, I'll say, hey, honey, look at this. Hurricane Charlie's about to hit land. Anywhere near us? No, no, we're talking Florida. Right. Now, there are signs that weather is approaching. Jesus says there'll be a shower or a heat wave. And it's great to be ready for rain or hot weather. But it's better to be ready spiritually for what is inevitably coming. Weathermen forecast the weather. They predict it based on different models. Jesus has foresight into the future firestorm, meaning he can prophesy about it. These things are certain to occur. It's not a prediction. It's a prophecy. And so verse 56, he says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Now, a hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask. It's an interesting choice of word indicating that unbelievers were acting as if they could not discern the signs of the times. It's, it's just interesting to dwell on this for just a second. We, we pay so much attention to the weather, which is a, an inexact science, which is a prediction, which is a forecast. We really don't know what's going to happen to any certain accuracy with the weather. And yet we, we throw ourselves into it you know with perfect accuracy what's going to happen spiritually, but everybody, oh, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen there? Well, Jesus' audience had plenty of signs. Jesus had been born of a virgin, just as the Scripture had prophesied in Isaiah saying, a sign will be given to you. The virgin will bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. John the Baptist had come preceding Jesus just as prophesied by Malachi. Jesus had been performing the miracles and signs and wonders that only the promised Messiah could perform. In a short while, Jesus would make his entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. On the very day, the exact day in history that the prophet Daniel said he would ride into Jerusalem. Even on the cross, after he'd been rejected by the Jewish leaders, Jesus would fulfill many very specific prophecies about the suffering of the Messiah. It's fantastic when you think about it. They could have known Jesus was their Savior with more accuracy than they could have known the next day's weather. What about us? Do we have any signs of the times? By far the greatest sign we are living in the last days before the return of Jesus and the firestorm of God's judgment is the nation of Israel. Israel's centuries-long persecution is a fulfillment of many Bible prophecies. So is her preservation as, a, uh, as an ethnic people. Especially, and, and this just, it just should spike you 
you know, you should say, wow, God promised to bring the Jews back into their land in the last days before the return of their Messiah. Even Christians ridiculed that prophecy. Ridicule might be a strong word. They dealt with it as if it were figurative, not literal. And, And you can read tons of commentaries that were written up into the 1950s after it happened that say, oh, you know, Israel will never be a a literal nation again. This isn't really what the prophets meant. And then lo and behold, May 14th of 1948, a nation was born in a day, just the way the scripture said it would be. And it should have challenged the thoughts of Christians and non-Christians alike. And then God declared that in the last days, Jerusalem, that city and the people of that city would become, and I quote from Zechariah, a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone for all people. And if Israel is nothing else, it is that. It has been the focus of the world's attention for many, many decades now. Peace in the Middle East has been the goal of every president that I can remember and we're always on the verge of it. I don't know what's exactly going to happen in, in, you know, with the current administration, but I do know that Israel is a burden and trouble for the nations of the world. And so, Israel. There are many other things that we could discuss as signs. The rise of the European Union, the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union, the amazing expansion of knowledge in just the past century, which has been foreseen by, again, Daniel the prophet, The technology that now exists to bring the planet into a one-world economic system by which you could literally have a mark on your forehead or hand by which to buy and sell. Again, ridiculed for centuries by Christian and non-Christian. How could that ever happen? How could the world be united by some tattoo on your forehead or on your hand? And now, you know what? It could happen tomorrow. They have the technology. They want to do it. Some people already have microchips implanted in them for various things. I'm not saying that's it, but it's, it's possible, isn't it? And you couldn't do anything about it. I'm, you know, we're tough and we're strong. We're the United States. But, you know, if, if all of a sudden the entire world decided to go towards that kind of a system, hey, I, I held out on the, on the uh, electronic ATM machine for a long time. I didn't want to have an ATM. And not because I was a Christian. I just, I like talking to tellers. I want that human contact. And they kept asking me, Bank of America, if I wanted to have a Versatel card. Remember? Versatellers? Yeah, right. No, no, no. Finally, they sent me one and said, you have a Versatel card or you don't have a bank account. I said, well, fine, I'll go to Wells Fargo. You have a Wells Fargo Versatel card or you don't have a bank account. And so I decided I needed a bank account. And so now I have a Versatel card. And it would be just as easy for them to say, you know, identity theft, 50 million Americans have their identity stolen every year. Did you know that? Right now, as you're sitting here enjoying worship, somebody could be going through your trash, stealing your identity. It's true. They're probably down buying a Hyundai right now on your good credit. Identity theft. And, and, you know, it could be just as easy for them to say, look, everybody's going to have to have one card, one number, and you know what? You can have a card or a chip implanted, and man, what a convenient... I, I'd almost do it. What a convenient thing. You know, everywhere you go for everything. And, and 
you know, there are so many signs that we are living in the last days before Jesus. The signs are more sure than any weather pattern. The trouble is, people are tuning into the weather channel as if that mattered, and they're not going to church. They're not reading their Bibles. They're acting like, they're hypocrites, acting like they can't see, oh, well, who knows, you know, that Bible stuff, woo, man, it's all in code anyway. Verse 57, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? Now, if you know it's going to be snowing at the 3,000-foot level and you're headed to the men's retreat, you're going to want to carry chains. It doesn't do you any good to know the weather and ignore it, hoping that the highway patrol will let you through anyway. I know a lot of you do that. Don't ignore the signs of the times. If you do, you're like the person described in this next illustration. Verse 58. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer. The officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last mite. A man who could not pay his debt was thrown where? Debtor's prison. According to some research I did, one of the rules governing debtor's prison was that the debtor was forbidden to pay the debt himself even if he came into unexpected money after he was put into prison. So if you're in debtor's prison and you can't pay the debt yourself, how could you ever hope to pay the last mite? A relative had to come and pay the amount owed. Once they did, they were given the right to walk back to your cell, open it, and escort you out of prison. Obviously, it's a great picture of what Jesus does for sinners. Before Christ came, we were all in a sort of spiritual debtor's prison because of the sin of Adam. We could not pay the debt ourselves. A relative had to come and pay it for us. But all of our earthly relatives, the whole human race, was in prison with us. Who could pay the debt for us then to the last might. Jesus Christ became a man, became our relative by blood, so as to pay our debt and free us from prison. And by the way, people hope there is opportunity after death to pay off the debt of sin. You've heard of purgatory. Purgatory is defined as, and here's, here's the definition of purgatory, a state of final purification after death, before entrance into heaven, for those who died in God's friendship, but were only imperfectly purified. A final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. I wish that were true. Don't you wish that everybody on the planet could die in God's friendship? That God says, hey, I want to be your friend, but you wouldn't give your life to me and you died in your sins, so how about you spend time in purgatory suffering and being punished for your sins and in a thousand or ten thousand years, then you'll be perfect and you can come to heaven. I honestly wish that were true because then no one would have to go to hell. We'd like to believe there was such a purgatory, but there is not. You, you, you have to understand that you could never pay your debt. Not on earth, not in eternity. 
No amount of your own suffering or punishment can pay in full what you owe. None of your surviving relatives can pay your debt. You know, in many religious systems, even some that consider themselves Christian, you can buy your relatives out of purgatory, pay enough money. You can pray them out, praying for the dead. You can baptize them out. You get baptized in their place. They weren't believers. They were never baptized. So you say, I'm going to be baptized in their name. Again, part of me wishes that were true. It's not. Why not? Well, it's false for one thing. But think about it. They, them, you yourself, they themselves are in debt. How can somebody in debtor's prison pay off your debt? The whole human race is in prison. It's not that you're better than anybody else and that you can offer anything for anybody else. Only one person can save the entire human race. And it must be God becoming a man, identifying with the human race, having the blood of the human race, a perfect man, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the only way that anyone could ever be saved. And that's how people are saved, on the cross at Calvary, avoiding that firestorm of judgment. If you're a Christian this morning, you're not going to be involved at all in God's coming firestorm. You're either going to die physically and then immediately be in the presence of Jesus, or you're going to be raptured with the church, caught up off this planet when Jesus returns. In either case, you will stand before the Lord and have your life's work judged. And gloriously, there will be a fiery purging of anything that was done from an impure motive, anything that doesn't belong in heaven. And that'll be great. And as I mentioned last week, kind of jokingly, some of you think that there'll be just a little spark here and there. Oops. Yeah, that's a bummer. Others are going to be like the towering inferno. Smoke alarms are going to be going off in heaven. You know, angels with fire trucks are going to be standing around. You know you're in trouble. If you get before the Lord and you see a bunch of firemen angels there, you're in trouble. There's going to be some burning going on. Nevertheless, you're saved and you will enter eternity purified and perfect. So, thinking about that though, from on this side of heaven, you'd be smart to get any kindling out of your life. When we lived in the San Bernardino Mountains, you had to keep like... 30 feet around your house had to be raked all the time from pine needles and leaves and debris. It might not save your house when the fire came barreling down through the canyon, but you at least had a chance because there was no kindling for it to grab onto. And so Christians need to rake out their lives. They need to rake away the kindling and and, and make sure as much as possible with the help of the Holy Spirit that we're ready for the Lord. Maybe you're not a believer today. I would ask you in different words the same thing Jesus said. Why would you be more concerned with the weather than you are with your soul? And maybe you think, well, I'm not that concerned with the weather. I'll bet you're more concerned with the weather on a daily basis than you are with the state of your soul. If you die, you will not be in the presence of Jesus. You're going to be in a place of suffering and torment awaiting a judgment where you will stand before God and the works of your life will be judged, but there will be nothing to cover them because you're standing in your own sins, having rejected Jesus Christ. And you'll understand that you deserve eternal punishment, 
and you will be cast alive into a lake burning with fire for all eternity. And I wish I could tell you you'd be annihilated, but you won't be. You'll suffer forever. And you'll know that it's righteous and just for you to do that. Or, if you're alive, when the Lord comes for His church and you're not a Christian, oh, guess what? You get to go through the great tribulation on earth. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 6 through uh, about 19. It's no fun. You're probably not going to survive. Very few people will. And at the end of that, you'll still be judged for your sin and cast alive into hell. And so you're in trouble. You're, you're in deep, serious, spiritual trouble. Your only hope is to ask Jesus to free you from your debt of sin by confessing your sin and accepting him as Savior. And we're going to ask you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the work of your Spirit in our midst. Most of us here, Lord, are Christians, gloriously so. Your Son has been revealed to us at some point in the past. The Word of God came in and we were born again. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness every day of our life. We are such failures. We fall so far short of your standards. And yet, Lord, you forgive us. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And we move forward in our walk with you. And we're looking forward, Lord, to being in heaven with you in that final perfected state. And I pray for us, Lord, that you would just help us to be a little more diligent, raking out the kindling from our life, Lord. Not so that we can earn anything, but just so that we can enjoy more of our relationship with you. We appreciate that, Lord. And now while Christians are praying, I want to talk to the unbelievers that are here. There are always unbelievers in any assembly. And by unbeliever, I mean that you have never prayed to ask Jesus to save you. You're not born again. You are not sure and have no assurance that if you died, you'd go to heaven. Or if you think you're going to go to heaven, it's, you're thinking it's because of some goodness in you or you're going to get your life together tomorrow or whatever it would be. You're hearing, you just know you're not a Christian, you're not saved. I want to talk to you for just a minute because Jesus spent a lot of time talking to you in this text. And these things that we're talking about, they are true. They are more true than tomorrow's weather. They are prophetic truths. It is certain the things that we've told you about. And we want to give you a chance to ask Jesus Christ to save you. It's not a matter of behavior. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It's a matter of what you believe. You must believe that you're a sinner, doomed for hell, but for the grace of God. We're going to sing a chorus or two, give you a chance to contemplate your situation, to think about where you would be if you died tonight. And if you can't honestly and with assurance say it would be in heaven in the presence of God, then you need to raise your hand and you need to ask Jesus Christ to save you. And so we're going to sing, give you that chance. Christians are going to sing and pray and ask for the work of the Holy Spirit in this place. And then we're going to, we're going to ask you to do the greatest thing that you can do on earth, and that is give your life to Jesus. Let's pray and sing.
Lord, that's our prayer right now, that you would come. We know you're in this place. We pray that you would come into the hearts and lives of any that are here that do not know you in a saving way. We ask in Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit, that you would move on hearts. There's nothing we can do or say. We're trusting in the power of your word, which you promised would not return void. And so I want to ask you right now, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you want to be saved? Do you want Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you do, then raise your hand so that we can pray for you. We're not asking you to join a church. We're not asking you to become religious. We're asking you to recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus is your Savior. If that describes you, then raise your hand so we can pray for you. Anyone at all, you're here this morning. You know that you're not ready to meet God. You're hoping that He doesn't come today or tonight. You can't wait even to get out of here so that you can put some distance between you and this prompting in your heart. Do you want Jesus? Then raise your hand so that we can pray for you. We love you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He is the one and only hope that you have. Let's sing again and then we'll give you one final opportunity. I know you're here. Jesus is offering you eternal life, abundant life now, purpose and meaning in your life, and eternal life in the future. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to change anything. He'll change you from within. Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you will, raise your hand so that we can pray for you. If not, we'll continue to pray for you because the judgment is coming, and it's serious, and it's severe. It's individual. It's personal. Anyone at all, you want Jesus, raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that these hard hearts could be continually softened by the watering of the word of God and that they would open to and receive the seed of your word and be saved for time and eternity. For your beloved children here this morning, Lord, fill them with a sense of your glory and the hope of your coming. We ask it in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's stand together and celebrate with one final chorus. As always, some of our guys will be down here to pray with you. If you're here and you didn't raise your hand, but you know you should have, come down and pray with the guys. They'll be happy to lead you in a prayer receiving Christ. God bless you. No, I don't see you. No, I don't see you.
Jesus and Jesus. 